guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this space. As I say oftentimes, if we haven't met, my name's Jamie. Uh, happy Mother's Day. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what you bring into this place uh, on days like this. I know uh, that word mother, motherhood, you know, for uh, some, it, it brings up sorrow and loss and tragedy. And for others, it brings up great joy and celebration. And, um, and so, I'm really thankful that we're about to dive into the Bible together because uh, it's the one place I know to go that meets us in the midst of the both and, of both joy and sorrow, and uh, meets us with something authoritative, inerrant, sufficient, necessary, and clear. And so uh, I just invite you to open up the scriptures this morning to Luke chapter nine. That's where we're gonna be. This is actually the last chapter before we off-ramp for the summer into uh, a summer sermon series uh, in the book of Proverbs, we're gonna take a pause. That way we can come back to the book of Luke and jump into community groups together and, and keep working through this story uh, in, that, uh, in that way. And so uh, we've got a few more sermons, I think, and then uh, we are pause buttoned. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible, you'll be able to track behind me on the screen with where we are in the scriptures this morning. Uh, let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll jump in and we'll, we'll get, get after it. Heavenly Father, you're the great provider for your people. Your greatest provision, the sending of your son to die for wayward sinners like us, that we might know the hope of being rescued into a forever family, given a seat at the great banqueting table of your grace, which we see a, a glimpse of, a, a foreshadowing of, a picture of this morning in a very familiar story that many of us have not only heard once, but numerous times. And so I, I pray that your word would prove itself, as I know it will, to be active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing our hearts. Lord, would you do that great work? Holy Spirit, we're desperate for you to move in power this morning. If you don't, this is nothing more than an exercise in futility to come. And so would you, would you do that great work in awakening our hearts, our minds, to the beauty of Jesus Christ, his person and work, that we might walk away like those that we're about to encounter on a hillside, satisfied. God, would you do that now? In the name of King Jesus, I pray, amen. So the, the story of the... Feeding of the 5,000 marks a, a turning point in the life and public ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. You see his ministry in Galilee come to a close. That's why we're, uh, it seems fitting to put the pause button there if we're gonna put a pause button on a series like this for a couple of months. As the ministry in Galilee comes to a close, Jesus directing his gaze, we'll see it soon enough, to Jerusalem, which is where this incredible story of redemption's going. The only miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, apart from the uh, resurrection, included in all four gospel accounts. So that if you've read just one gospel account in your entire life, you've encountered this story. It, it helps to bring deeper clarity, this story does, as does all of Luke's gospel account, to just who this Jesus truly is. As we sang just a few moments ago, that over and over again, Luke is calling us to behold, 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 and out of the beholding to believe, believe, 
believe just over and over again. The circumstances changing, the landscape changing, the crowd changing, but the theme there of trust and belief and beholding this Jesus, the same throughout. If you pick up the story in verse one, Luke tells us, and, and he, Jesus, called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. If you go back to chapter six, you'll, you'll recall Jesus exercising his kingship in the forming of a new people chosen in the wake of an all-night prayer vigil, the 12 apostles, hearkening back to the, the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, the new 12 through whom God would fulfill his redemptive purposes as soon to be sent ones with authority to bear the authentic testimony to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here you see that, that inaugural sending taking place as Jesus commissions the 12 to go, sending them to proclaim the kingdom of God, Christ the Messiah and King having come in the anointing of the Holy Spirit, to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives and those oppressed, recovery of sight to the blind and the year of the Lord's favor, the messianic fulfillment of the Isaiah scroll, coming back to chapter four, much of which Jesus has expounded upon for the better part of four and a half chapters now. The 12 have plenty of teaching material on the kingdom at this point in their discipleship experience. And so Jesus sends them out to, to proclaim, to proclaim the kingdom. And with that, commissioning them to cast out demons and cure diseases, miracles pointing to the kingdom, authenticating the truth of their message, which we've also seen Jesus doing now for the better part of four and a half chapters as well, right? All throughout the Galilean countryside, healing lepers and paralytics, casting out demons by the legions, now transferring his very own power and authority to the 12. Mind-boggling, making them his agents, his ambassadors, as he extends the reaches of, of his kingdom mission. It's a significant moment in redemptive history in foreshadowing what would come in the wake of Jesus's death, resurrection, and ascension the church today, Paul tells us, Ephesians 2.20, resting upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself, the cornerstone. And he said to them, verse three, and, and here are the marching orders. Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Jesus commands the 12 to go empty-handed, to travel light, no checked baggage on this one. Surely a, a call to faith from the beginning of the journey to the end, which is not that all, uh, all that surprising as trust in Jesus, I just mentioned it, it's a continuing theme. We've seen it over and over again throughout Luke's gospel account. Would the 12 trust the Lord to supply their needs? Already you get this foreshadowing of the multiplying of the fish and the loaves. Jesus's words here are a reminder of the, nature of the Christian life, as we daily trust the Lord to supply our need. Will we trust him? Verse four, and whatever house you enter, Jesus says, stay there and from there depart. In other words, don't bounce around once you get to a village, one house, which would mean being content with what they were offered, the 12, not looking for a better housing situation at each stop along the way. Not to mention that staying at one house would quickly wear out the welcome, keeping the 12 on the move and spreading the good news with a sense of urgency. 
And wherever they do not receive you, verse five, when you leave that town, Jesus says to them, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. There's nothing new under the sun. Jesus perceives that there will be towns and villages in which not a single household will hospitably receive the 12 nor their message of the gospel. Like Simon the Pharisee, remember him? Chapter seven, failed to treat Jesus with honor, refusing to provide him with the most basic hospitality, an indication on Simon's part of his receptivity to the gospel of the kingdom, an indication really of how Simon felt about Jesus himself. Jesus tells the 12 to shake off the dust from their feet if they're not received hospitably in a village or town as a testimony against those having rejected them. It's an incredibly astonishing thing for Jesus to say here as it turns the paradigm of kingdom thinking upside down on its head. It was customary in Jesus's day for for Jews traveling into Gentile territory to shake the dust from from those pagan lands from their feet before re-entering the land of promise. So as not to bring the unclean into the realm of the sacred. The fascinating thing about what Jesus says here is that he's not sending the 12 out into Gentile territory. He's sending them into Jewish villages and towns telling them to shake off the dust from their feet should they be rejected in the ministry to which Jesus is commissioning them. It's a testimony to the Jews' unbelief and a foreshadowing of the gospel going forth to the Gentiles. You see it in the sequel to the book of Acts as it unfolds. That this well-known gesture of shaking off the dust from one's feet, it's, it's really a symbol of divine judgment for those who reject the gospel. That to reject the messenger is to reject the message and the one who commissioned it. In this case, not only Jesus, but also the Father. Luke will go on to say, chapter 10, verse 16, the one who hears you, hears me, and the one who rejects you, rejects me, and the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. In other words, the, the weight of eternity is at stake here in man's receiving or rejecting the gospel of the kingdom. Reject the message of the apostles is to reject the one who commissioned them. To reject their writings is to reject the word of God as well as the one, uh, the, the God who commissioned them to put pen to paper. Verse six, and they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everyone. Short, simple statement on Luke's part. It's highly Christological in nature as it declares that Jesus, think about this, Jesus has the power and authority to transfer his power and authority. The 12, not only preaching the gospel, but healing people everywhere they go, just as we've seen, again, Jesus doing for several chapters now, extending the reaches of his kingdom mission such that verse seven tells us, word apparently finds its way back to Herod. Verse seven, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Last we saw John the Baptist was on Easter Sunday, chapter seven. You'll remember he was imprisoned in a desert fortress roughly five miles from the Dead Sea for having publicly rebuked Herod Antipas for all of his evils. 
in the midst of his own dark night of the soul, John was, wondering if, if Jesus truly was the promised Messiah. Luke now revealing that John's incarceration ultimately led to his execution, his head eventually delivered on a platter. A reminder that faith is not always rewarded in the same way in this life. Hebrews 11, some of us will love Jesus and will live a pretty comfortable life. Others of us will love Jesus and will suffer greatly for it. Some of us will love Jesus and experience a mixed bag of all, all those things. As Jesus made clear in the message he sent back to John, yes, I'm the Messiah. You need not look for another. And that doesn't hinge on the basis of whether or not your circumstances change. You may die in that prison, John, and it doesn't change the fact that I'm the promised one. Here Luke tells us that John did in fact die in that prison. One of the more tragic stories of martyrdom. Herod now hearing about the, the ministry and miracles of Jesus, whom some were attributing to John, others to Elijah, perhaps one of the other prophets of old having risen. And Herod's perplexed, likely overwhelmed with anxious thoughts. After all, Mark's gospel account tells us that Herod had feared John, knowing that John was a righteous and holy man. And that Herod didn't like the way that he had been manipulated into ordering John's execution. Now hearing that, that John might have risen from the grave, uh-oh, I was responsible for that blood. He back from the dead to curse me, the one who brought about his demise. What's going on here? Who is this about whom I hear such things? It's eerily similar to the question the disciples found themselves asking on that storm-tossed ship, going back to chapter eight. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? You see, the question of who Jesus is growing in both urgency and clarity as you work your way through Luke's gospel account. Remember, Luke wrote that we might have certainty regarding the son of man who came to seek and save the lost. Herod finds himself here wrestling with that very question, which leads him to seek Jesus out, something that Herod won't actually accomplish until Jesus' judicial trial setting the stage for the execution of the Messiah, just like his forerunner, John. Verse 10 tells us, picking back up the story of the missionary journey of the 12, on their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. The disciples, sure they were weary, tired, you ever been on a mission trip, even short term? That'll wear you out. In need of some time away for rest and renewal. So Jesus takes them on a retreat, withdrawing to, to the countryside of Bethsaida. But as oftentimes is the case in the gospel accounts, without so much as a pause, we're told that they don't get their rest, unable to find solitude. Crowds learn of their arrival, track them down. Here we go again setting the stage for one of the most well-known miracles in all of the Bible, the feeding of the 5,000, never would have happened if Jesus turned the crowd away. But as Mark tells us in his account of this story, Jesus had compassion on the crowd. Compassion, the Greek word splunk, needs am I. The gut-wrenching emotion as he looked out on a hillside and saw a group of people who were like sheep without a shepherd. 
moved in the deepest recesses of his being, the seat of his emotion, willing to be inconvenienced in a moment of sought-after solitude. Reminding us of two things, I think. One, Paul, and this is so encouraging. On the one hand, we can go to Jesus anytime and he'll meet us where we are. He never clocks out. He never goes to sleep on us. He never needs a rest or a break. His throne of grace is always approachable for the mercy and help that, that we need in those, those times of difficulty, and sorrow, hardship. He's always there to be approached. Secondly, and this is the harder truth, reminding us of our own calling as ambassadors of Christ, which will oftentimes inconvenience us, even at times when we're already weary, empty tanked. Jesus says, we got more kingdom work to do. Verse 12, the story continues. Now the day began to wear away and the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for, for we're here in a desolate place. We're in the countryside, Jesus. Wi-Fi doesn't work out here. The disciples, they seem to be expressing compassion and, and concern for the crowd in terms of the basic human need of food and shelter. I mean, after all, sun's starting to set, no nearby hotel, no nearby restaurant. However, Jesus's response gives indication that the 12 seem to have forgotten their own recent experience. Look at verse 13. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. Okay, like, it's, it's laughable, right? It's okay to laugh. So, some believe here that, that Jesus is bringing the disciples to the end of their rope, showing them how absolutely bankrupt apart from him they really are. That they might look to him for a miracle, just as they had looked to God to provide their every need on that recent missionary journey. Others believe, and I think this is a fascinating angle to consider, others believe that Jesus literally means what he says here, in telling them to provide. I mean, remember, the 12 had just received Jesus's very own power and authority to perform miracles. They probably raised people from the dead. They've just come back from a journey where they've healed lepers and paralytics, casting out demons, maybe by the legions, just like Jesus. Who's to say that in the name of Jesus, they can't participate in this miracle too? They've been vested in with his power and authority. Unfortunately, we'll never know because the 12 didn't believe. Instead, they, they respond, verse 13, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men, Luke tells us. According to Matthew's account of this story, there were 5,000 men plus their families plus wives and children, so that there were likely upwards of 10 to 20,000 people. I mean, imagine, if you will, for a second with me, standing at half court, State Farm Arena, home of the Atlanta Hawks, an arena that seats roughly 19,000 people, packed out crowd, Hawks are playing well right now, that's believable, basket of nachos and cheese in hand, looking around at everyone in their seats and, and asking, is everyone... Ready for dinner? You guys hungry? Five loaves and two fish is the equivalent to nothing. They have nothing. 
They're empty pocketed. They're bankrupt in their estimation. But isn't that how the gospel works? I mean, isn't it true that everyone here who professes to be a Christian became a Christian when you realized that the only thing you had to bring to the table was your sin? Not only do the disciples not have the kind of money to spend on dinner for a crowd this size, having given up their livelihoods to follow Jesus, but, but also there's, there's no Captain D's nearby. There's no Long John Silvers. There's no place to get thousands of fish sandwiches. It's a moment of unbelief. Like that not too distant moment in the storm-tossed ship. I don't know about you, but I find this incredibly relatable in the sense that you can't get through a single chapter without yet again seeing Jesus' disciples faced with questions of trust and struggling through it all along the way. What did he say on that boat? Where is your faith? The 12 saw the answer in the, the distant merchants, the distant restaurateurs. They stood in the presence of the living God. The one who had not only performed a number of miracles himself, calming that stormy sea, casting out a legion of demons, raising a little girl from the dead. But again, too, the one who had transferred his very own power and authority so that the 12 had performed similar miracles in his name. How easily we forget to look to Jesus. How easily we forget to trust in Jesus. How quickly we run to the functional saviors, the merchants and the restaurateurs when things get hard. And he said to his disciples, continuing on in verse 14, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, had them all sit down and taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Notice the grace of Jesus Christ in inviting his disciples to participate in this great miracle, though they had just doubted him. You ever get caught up in a moment of sin and unbelief and you feel like you gotta distance yourself from God for a little while as an act of penance? And yet in this very passage, we see Jesus moving toward the disciples and inviting them, no, 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 let's keep going with this kingdom mission thing. You're mine. And so he has them organize the crowd into smaller groups. They're probably, as they're doing it, wrestling with, why didn't I believe? The imagery here associated with the beginning of a, a typical Jewish meal, Jesus takes the food, looks up to heaven, says a blessing. And after that, he breaks the bread with divine authority and power, multiplying it such that it feeds an entire arena, so to speak. And Luke tells us that everyone was not only full, satisfied. That's what Jesus does. Enough left over for a basket full for each of the 12. One of the most mind-boggling things about this miracle, there are other places that you can argue that this is one story of redemption, the Bible, pointing all of it from beginning to end to Jesus Christ, his person and work. 
see it in the road to Emmaus, you see it in the book of Hebrews, among so many other places, but this very miracle shows it for what it is. As it both looks back in the past and it looks forward to the future. On the one hand, it hearkens back to the experience of Israel in the wilderness, God's provision of daily manna raining down from the heavens. Remember that story? Even more explicitly, Old Testament, to the story of Elisha, 2 Kings chapter four. Listen to these words and how eerily similar they are uh, to this morning's passage. 2 Kings 4:42. A man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. You may remember the disciples again on that storm-tossed sea. It was in that miracle that we saw Jesus doing the very same thing that the Lord is described as doing in the Old Testament, Psalm 107, calming the storm, hushing the waves of the sea. See the very same thing happening here in this morning's passage. Jesus doing the very same thing that we see the Lord doing in the Old Testament, in this case, 2 Kings chapter four. And they all ate and we're satisfied. Who is this Jesus? He's none other than God, our provider, the living God who can supply our every need. Ultimately, supplying us with himself and the satisfaction that can only be found in him. As we see elsewhere in the gospel accounts, he's the true bread, the bread of life. J.C. Ryle says in his commentary on this passage, the heart of man can never be satisfied with the things of this world. It is always empty and hungry and thirsty and dissatisfied till it comes to Christ. That Moses got it right when he said, God, I don't wanna enter the promised land if your presence isn't gonna be there. That the man in the parable of the treasure hidden in a field got it right when he sold everything in his joy to obtain that field. That Paul got it right when he said, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord that Jesus is not a means to something greater than himself. That is not Christianity. Jesus is not a stepping stone to something better than Jesus. Jesus is not interesting, interested in writing the checks for idols that pale in comparison to Jesus. The good news is not that we get God to give us whatever we want. The good news is that we get God. That's the gospel. The fish and the loaves they point to something so much greater. That great miracle, not only looking backward, but forward in redemptive history. Consider this. We go on to read the gospel accounts. We come to see Jesus at a different meal, the Passover meal, with his disciples. The institution of the Lord's Supper, a meal that you and I are gonna participate in just minutes from now because redemptive history just keeps moving forward. The breaking of bread in that sacred moment, symbolic of the broken body of Jesus who would go on to give his life for wayward sinners, making a way for us to gather at the greatest and most glorious of feasts to come, the marriage supper of the lamb. 
described in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. The food's gonna be good at the banqueting table of grace. The drink's gonna be good too. But even more than those things, the presence of Jesus Christ. So that I think the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is meant to, among many other things, lead us to praise Jesus for purchasing by his blood a seat for us at that great banqueting table. And as we long for that day with, with great and eager anticipation, I put a couple things before us in terms of exhortation. One, the reminder that, that we've been commissioned, not in the exact same way as the apostles, but commissioned nonetheless as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, sent ones, tasked with spreading the good news of the kingdom, and with that, ministering to the needs of those around us in authentication of our message. Kingdom proclamation in both word and deed, in the authority and power of the risen and ascended Jesus Christ. One commentator by the name of Norval Geldenheis says this with respect to this passage, we must go into the world and one, preach the kingdom of God, summon mankind to the realization that his divine and saving sovereignty has been fully manifested in the advent, passion, and triumph of Christ and that they must repent so that they may to his honor share in the wealth of his mercy as he even now imparts it to every member of his kingdom and as he will impart it fully at the end of the age. And secondly, he says, we must continue his works of mercy by working also for the deliverance of mankind from their physical need through poor relief work, care for orphans, hospital services, institutions for the blind, prayers for the sick, work among prisoners and other undertakings in the service of suffering humanity. And ultimately, in service of Christ our King, to whom we give our lives in humble submission, knees bowed, bent. And the second thing, as we submit our lives to him, this passage, like many others in Luke's gospel account, brings us face to face yet again with the question of trust, question of faith. Will we look to Jesus for our every need? Will we trust Jesus for true satisfaction? There's a poem that was once written. We don't know the author, anonymous. Doesn't really matter. The words in and of themselves are glorious says this, yesterday God helped me, today he'll do the same. How long will this continue? Forever, praise his name. I invite you this morning, as we close out this time in the scriptures, to, to bow in worship before the one who supplies our every need and who satisfies us with the very bread of his presence. We get to, Worship as we always do through our collective song in these moments to come. And also through the beautiful visual of the Lord's Supper, that means of grace, where if you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. 
my prayer for you as you receive of those elements this morning is that the word satisfied would rest on you, would stare you in the face, would overwhelm your heart, that it's through the finished work of Jesus Christ that, that we can know true provision and satisfaction. It's ours in him for the taking, no matter what our circumstances are. No matter if bread and fish get multiplied or not, we get Jesus. That's a win. We win. The church wins. 